It is truly good to see everyone here. It's really good to see anyone here this morning. Um, I should explain, we have some guests this morning. Glad that you're here. Um, we're doing something a little different this summer. Uh, Andrew Arthur, our senior pastor, is on sabbatical for four months, and so uh, there's a different group of speakers that are coming in each week to share the word with you, and you drew me, and we'll see in the next half hour how everybody feels about that. So at any rate, um, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is James 1, 1 through 8. Maybe we'll just read through that. We can put it up on the board, um, and we'll read through that and see where we're heading today. It goes like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let me pray for us as we get going. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything that you've put in it. Would you give us wisdom to understand your word and to know you more deeply? Teach us and incline our hearts to you in everything we do. We love you. We ask this all in your son's name. So we're going to spend some time in these first eight verses of James. So let me give you a little bit of a background about James. James was Jesus' half-brother. They had the same mother, Mary, but they had different fathers. Jesus' father was God. James's father was Joseph. And James was around during Jesus' ministry, saw what was happening. He was in, the, he was in that picture, um, but he really didn't believe in Jesus and Jesus' ministry and what it was about. We know that because in, in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, he says not even his brothers believed in him. But then something amazing happens, and, it, and Paul details it in 1 Corinthians 15, and he tells us that after Jesus had died and been resurrected, he appeared to James personally, and that encounter changed everything from James. From that point, he goes from being a skeptic to being one of the most ardent supporters of Christianity that there was. He became a devoted and respected leader of the early church, and we see him showing up in many of those positions uh, of, of authority. And that dramatic change with all that it meant in James's life, the trials he was signing up for, the persecution that he would go through, the eventual martyrdom that, that, that he died, um, that high price of faith that he'd have to, pray, have to pay has always been a really strong witness to me um, as to the power of the resurrection and the truth of the gospel. And I think that's one of the things that's always drawn me to this book. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I've been going through something and I'm looking for wisdom and I find myself in this little five-chapter book of the Bible because it has such timely truths in it, um, things that worked back then and things that are still very true today. And I hope we can see some of that as we work through these verses. So let's, um, let's break this down a little bit more. James 1.1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. And then two, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So James is writing to Christians, Jewish Christians that are spread throughout the area, and he calls them brothers and sisters. So we know that, so that's that nice little tie that we see in the, in, 
in these books when we know that this book was written to Christians and we are Christians as well, and so we can, we can tie to that. But he dives in so quickly. In verse 2, he's already at, consider, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So that's just not normally how at least I look at trials. I mean, how often do you go, great, I'm going through another trial, or I've been waiting for this one. It's just such a good deal that I've got a trial today. Um, we just don't think of them that way. My tendency is probably to go nuts. I'm going slogging through this again, or maybe even a woe is me kind of attitude. And James tells us that these trials are going to be expected, right? He's, we don't get a hall pass to trials because we're Christians. He doesn't say if ever you experience a trial. He says whenever you experience various trials. So not only are we going to have trials, it appears we're going to have multiple trials going. And then, thankfully, um, he points us to a reward if we persevere through those trials. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, Count it great joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And that word endurance is also translated perseverance in the NIV or steadfastness in the ESV. And it's getting at that idea of finishing the race, seeing the thing through, um, going the distance. And in the process, he tells us, we're going to become mature and complete and ultimately lack nothing. But to be sure we're on the same page, since we know these are already believers that, we that we're talking about, this is that whole sanctification process that goes on after we're saved. It's, this isn't about salvation. This is about sanctification. This is once we're Christians, how God is going to continue to work in, in our hearts to conform us to his image. And these verses, the one that I just read, and a couple others that we'll look at, they have these passages that I think of as sanctification spirals. They're these paths that God gets us on. Um, you see it in 3 and 4, faith producing endurance, endurance having its full effect, that leading to maturity, that leading to completeness, that leading to lacking nothing. And so those spirals are really key for us, and they tell us how God's working in our hearts and in our lives. Paul has one in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. It says this, And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So you can see how that progression moves from one to the next and builds on it. Peter has another, another one, another spiral in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7. He says this, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can see those spirals and how God works those in our lives. And James is laying out for us that trials, they'll surely come, but holiness and completeness can result from that. And ultimately, great rewards await those who endure. But I still find it a daunting challenge to find joy in trials. But we're going to come back to this, and we'll actually end up our little time together today, coming back to these verses 
But we've got work in verses 5 to 8 that I think are going to hold a clue to how we can make that happen in our lives and by working with God. So let's see where James goes from here. So he's told us that we need to find joy in trials, but fortunately, he doesn't leave us there to figure it out on our own. He offers us this great, this great offer and promise in verse 5. James 1.5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom as to how to consider it joy in trials, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. That's a good news passage right there, folks. The idea that we have a God, the God of the universe, the God that created everything, the God that we know and love, and he wants to give, give to us generously and not grudgingly. It's pretty amazing that he's just waiting for us to ask. But that is the trigger that you see in these verses. He says to ask. If, you're, if you find yourself wanting wisdom, then ask God and he will give it to you generously. So that's great news. It'd be nice if he stopped right there, but he doesn't. He adds this last little paragraph, and here's what he says. He's told us if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives to all generously and, and ungrudgingly. Are we up there? Yeah. And he says, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So let's think about this a little bit. God tells, I mean, James tells us that we need to find joy in trials, but if we lack the wisdom to do that, to ask God, which sounds like a great, that's great, but then he also says, but if you doubt, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. So that's a little daunting. And I've always read this, like there are three groups here. There, first, there's the, the group of Christians who are out there, and, 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 the, and the, that group is going to go through trials. But then there's a subset of that group that lacks wisdom and is going to ask God for wisdom. And then that's broken into two parts. The first part being the one, the people who ask in faith, and they receive their answers from God. But then you have the people that doubt, and they receive nothing from God. And in my mind, it felt like you plugged into one of those groups or another. And you had the, the general Christians, and then you had these asking in faith, then you had the doubters that were in the corner with a D on their forehead, right? I mean, they're those doubters that we have. But the more that I looked at this verse, and the more that I pondered what it meant, the more I became convinced that there's really just one group. It's us. It's we Christians. We're the Christians that find ourselves saved by grace, but still fighting sin here on earth. We're being sanctified by an infinitely loving God, but at times, we may start a week on a Monday, and we're in the full of faith category, and somehow by Friday, we find ourselves in the doubting category. And, that, and we flow back and forth in that, depending upon how we're dealing with what's going on around us. I remember I used to commute down to Seattle, and I get in the car in the morning, and KJR 950 Sports Radio was on. And I'd make it a few miles, and I'm just, gosh, just a little crass for me. I don't, I, and I'd flip it over to Spirit 105.3 and make it the rest of the way downtown. But somehow by the end of the day, after living in the world and everything that was in it, I'd get in and flip the radio on, and I'd punch 950 back up, and I could make it home with it. It was okay. And, and somehow... I had moved from that category of full of faith to doubting and not, not really caring about that. And so 
I think, I think regardless of where we find ourselves at any moment, whether we think we're in the doubting category and we want out, or maybe we just want to make sure we're in the, that category of asking in faith, we need help. We lack wisdom, which is why we're asking God for it. So how do we keep from doubting? How do we keep from even knowing if we're doubting? James tells us that that doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And that's a problem. But I think if we can solve that doubter's problem, we can apply that to the rest of this passage and have it make more sense to us and help us work our way out of this. And so to do that, I'd like to do, take us on a journey through a little nautical analogy. Many of you know I have this thing about boats. I just have always, always loved boats. And if you've spent much time on boats, you've been tossed and blown by the wind. Happens to the best of us. You head out, it's beautiful, the sea's calm, you just think it's going to be a breeze, and then all of a sudden, the weather changes, the wind starts to blow, and you find yourself being tossed and blown. It's okay if you're in a big enough boat, or if you're close to a home anchorage, or maybe if you're... Um, where else would it be that you wanted to do that? Hang on, I'll tell you. Or if you're in a protected anchorage, that would be a good thing. But if you aren't, it can get serious really, really quickly, which is why you always learn to watch the weather, and you always are prepared, and you plan ahead. And part of that preparation for a storm at sea is to have a good anchoring plan. One of the longest nights of my life was when we were up in the San Juan Islands, and we were going to Susha Island, the first, the first stop, and we were late getting going. We were late getting out, and we were late getting there. And when that happens, there aren't good anchorage places. Weather forecast was good. The wind was good. I thought we could pull it off. We anchor. We kind of squeeze in. There's just barely room for us there. And we get ready for bed. And I set this. There's on, the, on the electronics, you can set what's called an anchor drag alarm so that it tells you if you've moved too far away from, your, from where you think you're anchored. And basically, it tells you if your anchor is dragging. So I set that. Never, I'd never even heard the thing go off before. And then in the middle of the night, sure enough, I wake up. We're getting tossed. There are waves. The wind has shifted 180 degrees. The thing is blaring. Ah, ah, ah. We're, you're, you're dragging. You're dragging. And I get up, and sure enough, our anchor's dragging, and we're slowly moving down towards the boats that are behind us. So I go outside. It's pitch black. I let more line out, which is the thing that you do to try and get that anchor to hold. I let out as much as I can before I'm going to hit the guy in front of us. And but I don't know if it's going to hold or not. So I'm stuck in the cabin. It's pitch black. Everybody else is sleeping. And I'm wondering, is my anchor going to hold? And I start thinking the craziest thoughts of all the stuff that can go wrong. I don't know if you do this, but my, my theory is that when, when we don't know what's going to happen, we'll tend to fill that with the worst possible scenarios that we can come up with. So I've got us, in my mind, crashing into boats, people being thrown overboard. What I really need to do is reset the anchor. I need to pull it up, go find a better place to anchor, and put it back down. But you can't do that in the middle of the night. There are other boats out there. It's pitch black. You can't see. And so I was stuck with just worrying and waiting it out. All those what-ifs running through my mind. Fortunately, the anchor held. Daybreak eventually arrived. I breathed a huge sigh of relief. I was able to re-anchor us and get us set. But it was one of the most doubt-filled nights of my life because that question of, will my anchor hold? was just unanswerable. I didn't know whether it would or not. My experience has been when we're doubting like that, 
that can happen in our Christian walk as well. We can find ourselves faced with that question. Will my faith hold? I've wrestled through that. I've had friends who I've walked through that with, and I'm guessing at times you've gone through that same thing. And often it's in those various trials that James talks about that that happens, that something will catch us off guard, we'll get a little, we'll lose our footing, and all of a sudden we're wondering, is my faith anchor going to hold? That's our doubter's problem, right? In our passage, he's waited too long. He didn't get anchored ahead of time, and so he's wondering and he's questioning whether or not that anchor is going to hold. Now the trial's upon him, things are confusing, he feels lost, and it's way tougher to get anchored after the storm starts than it is to get anchored before the storm starts. So let's take a look at how some other people dealt with waves and being blown and tossed by the winds. Matthew 8, 23-27. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount. As he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You have little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Who are the doubters here? The disciples, right? What are they doubting? Jesus calls them out for their lack of faith. Their lack of faith in what or whom? In this case, their lack of faith in him, their lack of faith in Jesus. And we see that in their response. He rebukes the wind and it says they were amazed. These are the same disciples that had seen him do many, many miracles at this point, yet they're amazed when he can calm the waters. I mean, that's not an everyday thing, calming the waters, but by this point, you go, how could they not have had that, had that faith? And if, if they can feel that way, I think it's possible that we can feel that way. Matthew 14, 22, 23. This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. He says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came towards them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come, and climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. So what was the disciples' first reaction when Jesus was coming to them? They didn't even recognize him. Jesus tells them, it's I, but Peter says, if it's you. So he's still doubting, even though Jesus is in front of him, and Jesus is saying that it's him. How about Peter? Why does he sink? Is it because Jesus couldn't save him? No, I don't think so. I think it's because Jesus, Jesus tells us it's because he lacked faith and doubted. And it says when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and started to sink. 
So just like I needed that anchor to hold firm in the night in the San Juans, Peter needed his faith in his anchor, Jesus, to be strong enough when he was walking on the water. And as for the disciples, when the seas are calm, they worship Jesus and, and follow him. So we can see how they make it through their stormy night with Jesus' help. How can we help our doubter be ready for trials? What I'm proposing is that we think through how we anchor our faith, how we do that and anchor it firmly in Christ. If we can help our doubter do that before the storms hit, then maybe we can apply that to make sure that we don't find ourselves in the same situation. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about how to build a plan to anchor our faith. So any good plan for anchoring, step one, we need to select an anchor. And there are dozens and dozens of types of anchors out there that you can use depending on the size of your boat and the type of your boat and the kind of ground that you're going to be anchored in. It can be everything from a rock on a rope to massive complex systems that megaships use in order to anchor themselves safely. But for our purposes, I want to create a shared visual of a type of anchor that maybe you haven't heard of before, but it fits our purposes per per perfectly for our analogy about faith as an anchor. It's called a helix anchor. It's a really unique anchor. Um, if you've seen pictures of uh, in the Caribbean in coral reefs, or maybe on Catalina down in California where these nice neat buoys are all lined up, they're using helix anchors. And what it is, there's a strong metal shaft, usually a square metal shaft that's maybe four or five feet long, and then there are plates that are, that are welded to that shaft. They'll, be, they'll start at 10 inches and then 12 inches and 14 inches. They, I mean, it's like this, right? I mean, you've got a, a, an anchor that looks like that and a plate that's angled just enough so that when, you, when they take these giant underwater drills, they can screw that down into the seabed. So you end up with these plates down under the ground 2, 4, 6, 12 feet. If you get to where you've, you've got the whole thing in, they can add another section to it. You can end up with an anchor that's 8 or 12 feet down with these massive plates holding you firmly in place. So it's a perfect, um, it's a perfect solution if you want to stay in one place. And what they do is they put, buoy, they put buoys on that, and then boats can come and anchor and, and tie to it and know that they're safe. Ridiculously efficient. It's like four or five times more efficient than a normal anchor to do that. But it won't work if you want to be pulling it up and putting it down and pulling it up and putting it down. For our purposes, it'll work perfectly because we don't want to be moving our anchor of faith around. We want it to be in one place, right? The next thing you have to do is you have to select an anchorage. It's one of the reasons we don't have to pull our, our anchor up and put it down anymore. We know where we want our anchor to be. We pick Jesus, right? That's where we want our faith anchored. We want it anchored so strongly in Christ that when storms come, and waves rise, we're going to know that we're held by him and that no matter what, he'll keep us safe. No matter what, Jesus as our anchor will hold. The problem we raised in our verses isn't that we aren't secure in Christ. Think about this. The problem isn't that we aren't secure in Christ or that he can't protect us. The problem is that we doubt whether we're secure in Christ. We've been secure in Christ all along, but our minds can get going and start questioning whether we are or whether we aren't. Our doubter, if you think about him, he doesn't lose out on wisdom because God can't give it to him. That's not what the verse says. In verse 5, it says God gives wisdom to all. He loses out because he can't receive it. He's doubting. Things are hazy. He's not sure. 
And so he can't receive the wisdom that God is trying to give to him. Our doubter loses out because of that. But if you've got the right anchor, Jesus, you don't have to. The issue comes up with our hearts and our faith, and that's what can lead to doubting. Okay, so we picked our anchor, the helix anchor. That's our anchor of faith, and we're going to sink it down into Jesus, who's our anchorage. Now it's time to set our anchor and to firmly place that anchor once for all. This is a really important step. Now for us as Christians, there was, there's an initial setting of our anchor when we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. That's when we, that's when we initially are saved and our anchor is set. But what we're talking about here is this sanctification process that goes on later in your life. As you walk with him, and there are still times when sometimes you're doubting if you're really saved, or if you're questioning whether God is big enough, or if he cares enough, or maybe you're wrestling over and over with a thorny doctrinal issue that you just keep coming back to, or you just want to strengthen your faith and relationship with Christ. I'm proposing that we really want to set that anchor once for all, that we want to make a determination where our anchor is, and the fact that we're not going to be moving that around. Um, I know for me what that looked like was many years after I became a Christian, I went on this kind of journey with systematic theology because I really wanted to know what it was that I believed in. What was this faith that I believed in, and how did that all tie together? Um, and that was really, really meaningful, and it led to me coming up with my own little life mission statement that, that I've hung on to for probably 30 years now, um, and it went like this. It was only 19 words, but it, to me what it meant was that I was firmly putting my anchor of faith down there and I didn't have to keep going back and wondering whether it would hold or not. It was this. My life is not my own. I was bought for a price. I will praise him all my life. So if I start wrestling and I start wondering and questioning that stuff, I don't have to go back all the way to the start of Christian f fundamentals. I go back to that point and I go, I made that decision. I made it 30 years ago, and I'm not going to change my mind on that. And so I, I look at that as setting your anchor and making that determination one time for all that you're not going to go back. It's one reason I think the helix anchor is so good in, for our analogy. Once you set it, it's there for good. Now the next one, step four, is secure your anchor. Um, in this case, secure Secure nautical things, might, you might think of like lashing something down or tying it down to deck. That's not what secure means here. Secure, in this case, means protecting. But I couldn't use protect because Jeff told me that if I didn't have all the S's line up, <laughs> that it wouldn't be a real sermon. So, so I had to use secure instead of protect. But think protect and we'll get there to the same place. Um, but this is a really important one, I think. Um, and where it comes from for me, I've just found we have frail hearts and finite minds. It's, our tendency is to wonder about that anchor. Um, when the going gets rough and the winds start to blow, we tend to forget in the dark what God showed us in the light. You ever thought about that? God can show you something in the light, and it just seems so firm, and it's a foundational truth. And then in the dark, when the wind starts to blow... The, the waves start to build, it's easy to question that. And so it's way better to focus on getting rid of doubt. It's way, way better to focus on, it's, you don't want to focus on getting rid of doubt, you want to focus on building faith. Um, just as surely as light 
chases away darkness, faith will chase away doubting. The stronger your faith is, the more easily you're going to be able to chase away those thoughts of doubt. Just the way in a dark room, when you want to make a dark room light, you don't try to get the dark out, you put light in. So even though God has us firmly, I think it's fine to check on the status of our anchor. I know when we lived down by the lake, we had a Helix anchor that we tied our boat to, and I, just, I knew it was fine. I mean, this was a big old anchor, and we had a little boat, so it was, there was not going to be a problem, but I'd still scuba down every year just to check on it, and I'd, I'd, I'd sleep better knowing that I had looked at it with my own eyes. And I think that's fine. I think God expects that. He, God isn't afraid of us checking on our anchor and, and making sure that nothing's undermining it, that nothing's attacking it, um, that there's no problems that, are on, that you could visually see. Um, I think the amazing thing is, just like the anchor at the lake, our faith has been secure all along because Christ has a hold of us. And he has since we confessed with our lips and we believed with our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, one of my favorite verses of all times, says this, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. That's, just, that's, that's a check your faith kind of verse, right? I mean, guard your heart, guard your anchor. I mean, it's a precious thing. Your faith is precious. And, the, and if, if, you're, if you're wondering if it's okay, it's okay to do a checkup on that. Maybe that looks like a prayer weekend. Maybe it looks just like some time alone. Maybe it looks like sitting down with some really good friends and wrestling through some of those tough questions. But once our anchor is set, it's not a problem if we want to go down and check it just to make sure. We want to avoid that problem of our doubt starting to get into our mind and undermine our anchor. And in James and in the verses we looked at above, we're assured we're going to have trials. We're going to have afflictions. We're going to have suffering. After all, it's a fallen world and we're going to be attacked by the world our own flesh, we're going to be attacked by the devil. We may not understand that at the time, and we may lack wisdom. We may desperately need to run to God, pleading why. But as we do that, we go as children run, run to their parents for assurance, right? We run to them for comfort. We're not shaking our fist at him, shrieking, how dare you do this to me? We're coming to him as children, saying, comfort me, God, I need you. Finally, step five. Sink your anchor deeper and deeper. Now with our doubter's anchorage plan established and his anchor set, we're ready to go back up to where we were when we hit this verse in James 1, chapter 2, that says to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. What have we learned? So let's look at this call to find joy in trials and see what God's up to. He's using tough times to get us to holiness. We can see those spirals of trials leading to testing, leading to endurance, leading to maturity, completeness. Ultimately, he says joy. That process takes place over time. This verse, these, these three verses at the start, aren't a snapshot. This is a video of your whole life. That process takes time. It's endurance. He says it will build endurance. Endurance doesn't happen quickly. It's like there's no shortcut to patience, right? You've got to be patient. You've, it takes time to be patient. It takes time to learn to endure and to endure. And so time is built into that process in these three short verses. And they reflect not a day, not a month, but a lifetime of God patiently working on our hearts, patiently changing how we view things, patiently making our hearts different. And it's definitely not a direct path, right? 
Some days you wake up and it seems like that sanctification process is happening desperately slowly. There are dark clouds everywhere and it's surely going to rain. But then the sun peeks through the clouds and lo and behold, you've somehow made progress in that. And you know God was in that. God was working for, to make that happen. So as time passes, we begin to realize that each of those tests and trials, each of those, those things that we go through, strengthens our faith, and it turns our helix anchor another quarter turn. Once we endure that storm, we're more sure our anchor will hold in the next storm that comes along. Even if it's a bigger storm, that turns that anchor another quarter turn. That gives us more faith, the ability to persevere another quarter turn. We know during storms things happen fast. We often don't think straight, but every time that he provides answers, when we cry out for help, we know that he won't fail us another turn. We, maybe we see answers to prayer, our prayers, other believers' prayers. It's another turn strengthening our anchor. We may get to witness miracles, maybe even those God-ordained God touches just for you that you can remember and revel in and go back to and strengthen your faith. It's another turn of that anchor. For some, visions and dreams, another turn. Stories of lives that are changed so dramatically and so unmistakably that only God could be at work in them. That's another turn of that anchor. So as we make it through each trial, we can see that while the time hasn't always been filled with happiness, it's resulted in holiness. And our faith has been strengthened and deepened. Our anchor is held, and it will continue to hold. I want to close with Galatians 2.20. says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. As we yield to God in trials, as we realize that we can do nothing without Christ, as we trust him more than we trust ourselves, as over time our anchor is set more and more deeply in Christ, and as our faith becomes more and more firm in Christ, it becomes impossible to separate our faith from Christ as we are conformed to his image. We embrace more and more fully and more and more certainly the fact that it is in him and him alone that our faith rests and that our faith will hold. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, would you just work the way you always do and conform our hearts to the image of your Son? Would you continue to teach us, continue to mold us, continue to have your way in our hearts and purify us? We love you and we give you this day in your Son's name. Hopefully when you came in, you received